Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper, and now on other historical mysteries as well. This is our first episode of Off the Shelf, a new series where we take a book devoted to a specific mystery of interest and rip it to shreds. In true book club fashion, we hope you enjoy this episode with a glass of your favorite beverage and multiple snacks. The first book that we have chosen to read is The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream, The Hunt for a Victorian-Era Serial Killer by Dean Job. If you have not yet picked up your copy of the book, we encourage you to hit pause now, give it a read, and come back to us when you're done. There will be spoilers. Thomas Neal Cream was a Canadian doctor who was suspected in the poisoning deaths of multiple people, for profit and for pleasure. He was convicted in Illinois in 1881 in the poisoning death of the husband of his lover, and following his release from prison ten years later, he traveled to London, where he would spend less than a year as a free man before again being arrested on suspicion of homicide. He was convicted and hanged in 1892. My fellow book club readers today are Jonathan Menges, host of RipperCast, and John Reese, co-host of Sherlock from Adler to Amberley. And after book club discussion ends, stick around for a one-on-one -on -one interview with the author, Dean Joe. All right, thanks for being here today, gentlemen, and let's just jump straight in. The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream, which is a title that right away made my brain twitch. I don't like i didn't like the title initially <laughs> this will just let you know my my biases right off the front and it was funny too because we were we were talking at when we were discussing the book titles we were uh what we were going to do coming up we picked three books and two of them were called the case of something and i was and i was sitting there and i was like why is this one making my brain twitch and I, I quickly realized it was because, like, he didn't follow the rules of the trope. All three of them uh, are the case of, aren't they? All three of our first books are the case of something. Because uh, this one. No, but that's called Mr. Crippen, Cora, and the Body in the Basement. That's not the case of. Oh, it's not the case of the body in the basement. No. It could easily have been the case of the body in the basement. See, and if he had done the case of the body in the basement, that would have followed the case of trope, which is what, it doesn't always follow this, but usually it follows the same sort of, like why it works with the Aldridge books, the case of the salmon sandwiches versus the case of the murderous Dr. Cream is, is one, it's usually alliterative, not always, but it is usually alliterative. It's the bashful billionaire, the diabolical doctor, uh, you know, body in the basement would have even, it's always a noun mm -hmm. adjunct noun or an adjective noun that are alliterative, like a pair. And so I was just looking at like, why is this title right? bothering you... me? And it's like, he, he knows the trope enough to try to use it, but not well enough to actually make it work. Like you never have the case of here's the suspect's name, just bam, right in there. Like, that's not the trope. It doesn't work. The title didn't work for me right off the bat. So I was like, okay. But again, you can't judge a book by its cover or its title. So. Do you, do you know, I didn't even know that's what the book was called. <laughs> oh. No, because, because I, I find this a lot. You know, when you load, um, you, you know, uh, a book into like a, 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 an e-reading app. So, you know, this book, the EPUB format came onto my Apple Books. It doesn't open the cover. It takes you to like the, the, the acknowledgements or whatever it is. 
Yeah. Um, so this is actually the first time I've actually looked at the cover was when I've gone to look at it now. So I didn't even know that was the name of the book, to be honest. I'm um, constantly I was... befuddled. I never know the title of what I'm reading anymore. And sometimes I don't even know the author because I know I no longer yeah, look yeah. at it every time I pick the book up. Yeah. Which when you have an actual proper book, you see the title, you see the cover, you see the author every time you pick up the book and it sort of imprints on your brain. And yeah. I, especially with now I'm in two different book clubs. It's sort of like, I never know what I'm reading, what it's called. Yeah. Ever. I mean, so. that, 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 that's more criticism of e-publishing um, rather than this specific book. But yeah, just, yeah. yeah. Okay. So what did you guys think of the book overall? What were your opinions? We'll go with John Reese first. What did you think? Oh, I had one more thing to say about the title of the book. Oh, okay. Um, I don't um, necessarily object to the title of the book. Um, because it, it tells you exactly what the book is about, right? What, what was, uh, so like Sarah Beth Hopton wrote the, the definitive book on the Mary Percy case. And that book is titled Woman at the Devil's Door. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, you wouldn't know what the book was even really about uh, based on the title Woman at the Devil's Door, you know? So I don't. I didn't have a problem with the title. Um, Sarah Beth could have called it, you know, the 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 case of the murderous Mary Percy or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Um, I don't know. I had. I, I just want to be on record saying I didn't really have a problem with the title. I I, 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 I quite like a bit of a, a flowery title followed by a factual subtitle. Um, I, I quite I quite like that style of things. Right, and I think that might be what Sarah Beth did. The mm -hmm. the woman's woman at the devil's door, you know. Yeah. Subtitled Mary Percy and the whatever. Yeah. Anyway, I'm gonna stand on don't use a trope if you butcher it. Butcher it. Don't use a trope <laughs> if you're going to butcher it. <laughs> like, and again, it was just again, it's just one of that wasn't even a pothole in the road for me. It was just a little bit of a like the bumpy tires. So what did you think of the actual contents of the book, which is, of course, what we're actually here to discuss, not my nitpicky snickering at the title. Um, John Rees, what do you think? I, I, I overall enjoyed it. I did find it a bit confusing um, the first few chapters um, because I didn't know all that much about Cream. I knew he was a poisoner. I knew he operated in Lambeth and originally came from, um, you know, the other side of the uh, the Atlantic or the Pacific, whichever ocean it is. I'm used to geography. Anyway, um, and, um, but yeah, beyond that, I didn't know that much about him. So the way the book was structured, I found slightly confusing at first. Um, but overall, I once, you know, I got past that and once, the structure kind of started to pay off what the author was trying to do. I did enjoy it. I agree with you 100%. And that was one of my main criticisms of the book was the structure of the book. Like I understood what he was trying to do, but I think he did it badly. I think this was an editorial mistake. Like it could have been fine if they had the like I call like in my brain when I was thinking about this I was calling it like time hopscotch like he was jumping back and forth between eras like it starts off sort of with his with cream's past then it gets into the London poisoning then it goes back into his past and then we're hopscotching back and forth between his past and the London poisonings 
and while, while dropping bits of biography of cream in there. And I found it to be very sort of haphazard and scattered. Mm -hmm. And I think structurally, if he didn't want to just do a linear narrative of cream's biography, which is, is, a, is, a, is an editorial choice, I think it would have been far better if he had just eliminated all of the cream biography from the beginning, like sort of do it in three acts. Um, yeah. which it, like the first act could have been just the poisonings, the Lambeth poisonings, like cream is pretty much eliminated. We deal with the case. Here's the case. Act yeah. one ends with them apprehending cream. Bam, he's slammed into jail and we send Jarvis off to America to discover his backstory. Then act two is we get Cream's backstory and we start learning about him and, and you know, his history. And then act three is, of course, the trial, the denouement, the, the thing. But I found this sort of scattershot hopscotching through time, plus throwing in bits of Cream biography all jumbled out of order of, of, of his timeline, I found that to be distracting from yeah. the overall story. Yeah, and, I, and I just think that it was an editorial mistake to not yeah. sort of cleanly delineate. And, and you can do flashback, flash forward and, and have it work very, very well. Part of the reason I had a problem with this is I was concurrently reading another book that was doing flashback, flash forward, and they were doing it excellently well. And it sort of exposed how very badly it was being done in the cream book because there needs to be like a throw line through it. You need to have a reason why I'm now flashing back that connects to the present linear timeline. Well, why there are was. we jumping back um, and forth? What, what the author had to contend with here is there were two parallel investigations going on simultaneously, yeah. one in London and one in the United States. So remember that as the inquest was proceeding in the UK is when Jarvis was in the United States um, discovering uh, Cream's crimes in, in the United States and Canada, right? Yeah. right? And then sending that information to the UK and ultimately convinced Robert Anderson to charge um, Cream with the uh, UK murders. So the author had the chronologically, I agree with John in that initially it, it was a bit confusing, but then as the book progressed and I, I, and I got to understand what the author was attempting to do, it made more sense. So, yeah. I mean, so the way you got it, you, you have, you, it didn't always work. So like, for instance, um, earlier in the book, you have, um, dealing with the Lambeth poisonings, Cream writing the blackmail letters, right, that um, were sent to a handful of individuals who then gave them to um, Scotland Yard, but then Scotland Yard fumbled and failed to follow up with these letters with L Division when the connection could have been made earlier that Cream was involved in these murders and possibly saved lives down the road, right? That wasn't discovered. That Those letters, the connection weren't, wasn't made to those letters until after his arrest, right? Yeah. But the author chronologically puts them in, chronologically as to when Cream wrote them, as opposed to be, placing them 
um, later on um, during the inquest and the trial, right? So he takes the chrono chronology of those, even though they had no impact on the investigation because they were overlooked, into the, the first initial portion of the chronology. But then what the author then does is puts the earlier crimes that were committed in the United States and, and eventually what led to Cream's imprisonment in Joliet into the chronology of the later inquest investigation. Uh, um, right, uh, and I don't think it works. Jarvis's I really don't. discovery yeah. of those I think, events. I, I, so I, I, it wasn't I, very consistent. Yeah. He couldn't but, decide who he wanted his point of view to be from. Did he want the point of view to be just an, a cream biography or did he want it to be the Jarvis inspection uh, investigation right. of the cream biography? Yes. And yeah, he, not yeah. only did he hopscotch back and forth between those points of view, but in between hopscotching back and forth between those points of view, he was also jumping back and forth between the, the London inquest into the Lambeth poisoning <laughs> and the Jarvis investigation and the cream biography and it was like this constant game of whose point of view and what time which is what in. yeah and the cream yeah. biography is is um in in service of the jarvis investigation yeah so you know they stop when when they're when they talk about his um his his school his upbringing and schooling and things like that which doesn't even occur until the middle portion of the mm. book um, the backstory on Cream's antecedents and his his childhood and his family and all that stuff, and then his schooling yeah. and his his religious upbringing and, and yada yada yada. Um, that is uh, introduced to the reader in the middle of the book because then you get a section of thirteen years later. Jarvis spoke to X person who was involved in Cream's past that we just described and yeah you know so so but, it it was a difficult task i i accept that the author had kind of a difficult task because like you said uh there was jarvis could very well have been the star of the book and yeah. and and i wish that someone would i mean because i think he's a more fascinating character than cream honestly mm. um um and given his i don't what he his involvement in the rip tangentially in the Ripper investigation and things like that. Someone needs to write a full biography of Jarvis. I so you had this, and then and I want to say this finally. Ultimately, the Jarvis material, as great as it was, in my favorite part of the book was the second half. It ultimately doesn't pay off because none of Jarvis's information that he collected in the United States was introduced at Cream's trial. Yeah. So it kind of falls. The press got a hold of Cream's backstory, but none of this information about Cream's earlier crimes in the United States or his imprisonment in Chicago or anything ever was used to, uh, as any evidentiary material at trial that would have led to his conviction. I, I I think that it's the if if Jarvis was the character or Jarvis was introduced earlier, it would have worked better. So you know the prologue had been released from from Juliet, um, and it's never really said why he was there until later on in the book. And then you know he goes to he goes to London and he covers the Lambeth poisonings, and it almost 
I don't know if it's references or hints stuff that we haven't discovered yet. It references previous poisonings. It references, I think it references the previous blackmail attempt from what I remember. But it's not until then he goes over Jarvis, you start discovering the backstory. It makes sense. I think it would have been better to start with the prologue with Jarvis arriving in North America to begin his investigation and then explaining why he was there with the Lambeth poisonings and then doing what Jarvis discovered. So you knew it was coming up because it just seemed like very confusing. Like it skipped over three quarters of the story um, you know, before it started. It was not well structured. It really wasn't. Like, I, I, I agree with you on the prologue. Like that's that, like, because it was sort of like, again, I didn't know anything about Cream as well. And I read the prologue where he's being released from prison. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, wait, that's an interesting. Okay. And then it gets into the Lambeth poisonings. Um, it, it was very chaotically structured. It, th- that was editorial decisions that I think needed to be cleaned up in the editorial process. Again, it's like authors have all, of, and I believe, I think Jarvis could have been discluded. That's not the word, excluded. There we go. Excluded from the second narrative altogether. Like, I believe he wanted to put Jarvis in there because that's obviously where a lot of our source information, his source information came from, was from um, the police files of what Jarvis ended up finding. But from a narrative perspective, Jarvis didn't need to be included in this. It, It just distracted. If he had been in the prologue and we sort of knew that that's how we were getting it, he could have just been popped in like in the second, like here's the investigation in the second act. It's proceeding in America. This is what Jarvis discovered and boom, 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 cream biography and seeing trial. But it just, it it was chaotic. And I think that I believe probably, and this is pure speculation. I don't know if this is the truth, but I believe he probably wrote this book, the way parts of it were reading to me. I believe he sort of wrote it in a linear narrative. Like he kind of wrote it beginning with Cream's life, ended with the end of his trial. Mm -hmm. And when it went into the editorial process, they decided to hatch it up and kind of rearrange the structure and they didn't necessarily remove all the parts of it and reorganize it thoroughly the way that it should have been yeah and they left in parts that 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 shouldn't have been left in if there was a if there was a way that the two tracks converged in a way uh the jarvis um, investigation and the Scotland Yard investigation in uh, on the ground in London could have built suspense in a way to where those those two um, investigations ended up meeting and paying off. Right. Then going back and forth between the two um, parallel investigations would have worked because because it, it could have built built momentum like two cr- two trains heading towards each other to to collide right but the case history in in that Jarvis's investigation as i said didn't ultimately wasn't used at trial there wasn't that collision there wasn't that aha moment there wasn't someone bursting into the courtroom saying We've just received this cable from Jarvis and he killed all these other women in the United States. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree 100%. 100%. 100%. <laughs> yeah. So, so he had, 
he he again i sympathize with the author i did the bet i think he did the he did an okay choice with the material again it takes you a while to get through it but it it took me a while to to um to get to get accustomed to the the format of the story but once i did i i found myself uh, enjoying the jarvis stuff more than the the um the uk stuff um so i I was anxious for it to get back to that jarvis material so well and it's also because you start off in the mid like the way that the you know again i keep falling back on this play in three acts kind of a thing but he sort of starts the book off in the middle of the second act of the story and you you feel this kind of hang of like uh we're, we're missing a lot here kind of a thing. And there's some, there is satisfaction in getting some of those details filled in, but I spent a significant portion of the first part of the book going, uh, are we ever going to figure like, are, are we going to talk about him having been in prison earlier? Right. Like, yeah. yeah. Cause what, there are certain what, what are things that are, here? And, yeah, and, there, there, there are, there are things that occur in that first half of the book that you don't know why they're right. occurring. Like this is like, his family is concerned with um, Cream's mental health. They send him to frickin' London to begin with. But, and it's completely glossed but, over. He was then he, like, he but just then got they start out of worrying about him for ten then, years the, for murdering somebody, and it's like, oh, off you go to prison. The, right. The so air will so do his, you good. his family um, arranges for him to go to London. London, but not then, prison. Um, but then. Um, same but thing. then short shortly afterwards start to be concerned about his mental health we don't know why and so they they call him back to quebec city mm-hmm. but rather than care for him they stick him in a hotel room somewhere and never go to visit him and so cream just gets bored and goes to his father's attorney his father's solicitor who handles the estate borrows the money to go back to london so that whole um sending cream off to lambeth uh, Cream returning to Quebec City, being essentially ignored by his family, and then returning to London. You ne- you never know, like he s- said, it would have been helpful to, to have had that s- 1870s backstory to give us a, an understanding of what the family was ha- really dealing with here with their brother, right? Which is why I think it would have worked better if he wanted to keep this narrative structure of starting it off with the London poisonings. Cream should have been entirely removed from the the first act. It should have focused solely like the police. If he was going to have Jarvis and the police as being like his his central focus kind of a thing, Cream, none of Cream's biography should have been in the first part where the Lambeth poisonings were happening. Cream should have been. Yeah nothing nothing to do with cream should have been in here we should have just started off with the poisonings as if we knew nothing we didn't know it was cream we didn't know anything just like a a mystery who's doing it and then the we as a reader find out when the police find out that it's cream and then cream's story begins with the second act and we find out all of that stuff because as it was like you said we're sitting there kind of going what <laughs> there's so many que- that and you're like you said because all of that stuff with cream going back to quebec city in the middle of the london poisonings 
we know that as the reader, but we're baffled by, we know he got out of jail because we were told that in the prologue. And now he's going back and why isn't his family? And it, it just, it creates like a chaotic structure that isn't, like you said, there's no payoff to it because it's just, that's where I said, like, I think he started it off in a linear narrative and then they decided to shift how they did it and break up the linear narrative. And they should have removed all of the cream biography from the Lambeth part. And so, so you think that the, the book act. should have started because in, in Lambeth and with the Scotland Yard investigation, as you were saying, they didn't know who was doing it. This mysterious Fred person. And, and then the, and then maybe the blackmail letters where he picked up on the name of what was it? A, one of his uh, a, a scientist who testified at one of his American trials or something as a pseudonym. Yeah, like that. yeah. Murray, um, he did the Murray, the private, uh, the Pinkerton detective who right, he hired. Right, right. He used Murray as one of his blackmail letter. I'm a right. So yeah. you're saying part one should have been who is this mysterious Fred? Who is this mysterious? William Murray or whatever name mm -hmm. he used. And then we it's... get the answer in the biography in the second half. And so then... effectively, part one should have been a ripper book, basically. <laughs> sort of, yeah. A, a shorter, yeah. But yeah. but I just I did not like the narrative structure of this. I didn't yeah. I didn't find it cohesive. My pothole analogy, it was just too bumpy for me. Um, but I did in, in the author's credit, like I found his writing was good he had he has good command of written structure you know i've written I, i've written i've read several books where it's like people have very simplistic writing that doesn't engage you at all i didn't find that here his writing was engaging he he had very few places where i was like wow that's just a bad sentence um, you know um most of my most of my quibbles i would say with this book were, were editorial decisions like there were some things where i he had an over-reliance on sherlock holmes to a ridiculous oh, degree and comparative there was one sentence where he was talking about and i don't remember the sherlock holmes story but it was sort of like just like in the sherlock holmes story blah 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 where Sherlock examined the watermark, the Scotland Yard examined the watermark of the letter that they had received. And I'm like, really? Was that, was that a comparison that needed to be made? Do you actually think that Scotland Yard got its idea to examine watermarks from Sherlock Holmes? Why is that a, a, a comparison that's being made? The sentence should have just been, they examined the watermark and found that it came from here. It should not have yeah. been like some stretch like convoluted. We were, Let's compare this to this was, Holmes. Yeah, this is the part of the book that really annoyed me was, you know, filler, um, you know, the five pages or so of the history of the Victorian detective just to introduce a quote from Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. And then I think that quote was repeated a couple of times in different chapters. I think the first half of the book, every single chapter seemed to be a Sherlock Holmes name drop uh or if it wasn't Holmes then it was Arthur Conan Doyle being name dropped it, it's yeah it was, it was it was it was a scene setting you know um and it's a problem uh we've seen encountered uh in the past uh, to a more egregious degree I think this author did an oak it's weird it's like I, I can excuse this author doing it because we've seen worse 
in in the recent past about so little information really being known you know just knowing the facts as they were presented and then having to fill page for page length with um with other stuff this author makes a point at the beginning of the book to saying every quote you see in this book is a quote from a primary source that actually existed. Everything that's said in this book was actually said, right? Whereas with another book that we're all familiar with, we know that they just conjured up situations and scenarios and instances and happenings out of thin air that have no foundational basis in reality because of the lack of information about the, like in the case of the victims of Jack the Ripper. Yeah. And um, I didn't mind the initial introduction of Conan Doyle and the whole Sherlock Holmes things, because I do think like uh, providing a bit of context about how, mm. I mean, it's not like it's any different today. There is a mania for murder. Like how many CSI TV shows are there? How many law and orders? How many uh, bones? Uh, how many, there's so many stories that are basically around the concept of the detective and solving the crime and the mania that surrounded it was sort of born within this era. So the initial sort of like, this is the context in which he was living and there was a mania for murder solving and detective. And even there was a part in there where he talked about how one of the newspapers apologized one time because the murders they were reporting on that week were just boring old regular murders. There wasn't anything exciting about them, which I thought was an interesting touch. He did do a little bit too with the Jekyll and Hyde and comparing Cream to Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah which there was one part which I thought was interesting where he sort of talked about uh, Cream's sort of repressed sexual nature, like the growing up as a uber-religious, repressed gentleman kind of a thing was his uh, Dr. Jekyll persona. And then, and I mean, obviously that wasn't the, the main theme of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but he, he sort of like compared it to that of the proper respectable Victorian man by day and the fiendish mm-hmm. sex fiend by night. And right. But what are the, uh, so I have a couple things, a couple points to bring up. Um, I thought that, I thought it was okay to reference um, the effects that Shrichnine had on the victim um, in the context of the, the Sherlock Holmes story, um, because Doyle probably was the first to make the wider public aware of um, the horrors of strychnine poisoning, right? And so he does uh, repeat that, um, you know, I think it's Watson who who says in the Sherlock Holmes, is it is it a study in Scarlet or? Um, um, sign of the four, I think. When, uh, you know, her but face was frozen in a mannequin smile and stuff like that. Yeah, right. I, I think it's sign of the fall, but I don't think he names strychnine. I think he just describes it as a powerful vegetable alkaloid. Yeah, so so I think you know when when uh, people were queuing up to read the Sherlock Holmes stories on a date on a whatever weekly basis or however often they were coming out, it's okay to have made that comparison. I I do agree that there was an overemphasis on the the Doyle and the Holmes thing. Um, and then secondly. Uh, about what Ali was saying about the Jekyll and Hyde deal and how he was a um, respectable doctor by day, but then he unleashed his demons at night um, uh, coming because that the women who he attempted to poison, but who got away with it, did describe that kind of personality. He was very charming, but then, you know, something became off with him. 
um, one of the interesting parts of that, I thought, was when he then described the uh, his ease of access into these rookeries and into these slum neighborhoods by saying, you know, so here we have a guy who is a doctor by day, by night, walking through these slums in Lambeth where policemen wouldn't even venture. But because he had a medical bag Mm -hmm. that shielded him from any um, harassment. So the doctor, and this feeds into the Ripper case, obviously, where we, we know that a policeman wouldn't have dared venture down Dorset Street, so we're told, at night. But the freedom of movement that someone carrying a medical bag could have had through these same neighborhoods, visiting the sick, put that, that doctor position in, in, in a more welcome, as a more, more welcome personage than, than police officer, you know? So I found that interesting, how the disguise almost, if you will, of Cream as a doctor allowed him safe passage to be able to commit the, some of these crimes, you know? I thought that I- was a really good point. I did find it interesting how many doctors there were who turned out to be poisoning murderers. Uh, like we've always heard like the, the, the trope again of the woman, it, poison is a woman's weapon. Well, apparently it's also the doctor's weapon because he referenced several different doctors within that book who had been caught murdering people via poison for financial gain. And I found that kind of interesting. And then it related back to, uh, the original uh, medical school that he had gone to, McGill, and how there was sort of a, like, despite what they said, you know, a doctor is a high calling, there was sort of a callous disregard for, uh, like, uh, sort of like that frat boy mentality kind of thing that got fostered in it. And I actually, I looked up McGill and I read, somebody had referenced Dr. Cream and McGill thing, the the school and it said uh yeah this is still kind of like the mindset today and I thought that was kind of an interesting somebody out there is writing a blog who really hates McGill to this day like they like currently um and and talking about sort of the um uh, I don't want to say depravity of it but like you know you're digging up bodies you're to in order to cut an experiment sort of like the that there was like a callousness that was originally engendered in medical doctors or a superiority um yeah it, it's like the, the, it's hardly hallowed halls isn't it and yeah uh, um i i think you know comparison to uk the uk political system is that the politicians who tend to have gone to um, Oxford University and been members of certain dining clubs feel they can get away with anything and stuff like that because that's, you know, as if they're more over... It's overprivileged, isn't it? It's the, I'm a better person, so I'm going to show it. It does seem to be the atmosphere that some some schools or universities, you know, kind of instill in their students by the sound of it. And this, the culture of slumming. Um, in the Victorian yeah. age that, that that led into, you know, where they, you know, they were that at night, they were because of the location of these hospitals, the these, uh, these medical students could take advantage of these brothels and gambling halls and all 
to um, basically satisfy all their deviant urging was pretty interesting. I would do this. This is one thing I think the book lacked a bit of. Um, I'd have liked a little bit more focus on um, some of the, you know, the victims' biographies. I know perhaps there wasn't that much information out there, um, but I, I think most of the victims in London barely got a biography beyond like a line or two. Um, you know, they were just kind of like prostitutes um, rather than you know being people. And there was a generic thing about how you know women fell into that situation. It was for survival and stuff like that. But it, it did almost seem to like dehumanize them a tiny bit to me. Although he didn't go into the biographies, I think he made it a point to, and especially if you read uh, the epilogue where he sort of talked about aspects of how women were treated in Victorian times. Yes, yeah, yeah. He, I found... he did point out the double standard. He, he did, yeah, there was a lot on the Victorian double standard, uh, you know, pointed out and, and referenced to that. Yeah, to be fair, there was a lot of that. And I did appreciate that. And there was like that one quote that he put in where there, it was talking about the victim and, it, and I can't remember the quote offhand, but it was basically like, she was just a wretched nobody missed by no advent to society, no advantage to society missed by nobody, like dismissed her life as, you know, well, she didn't matter, whoop-dee. And he pointed that out. And I and I will have to say, I very much did appreciate, especially in the end, you know, things like the doctor dismissing the accounts of the women who said, oh, well, she just died of alcohol. She was just a drunk prostitute. She died of alcoholism, didn't even bother, even though like the, the people were saying, well, no, she was convulsing. And he that and that where I think the, the Sherlock Holmes reference came in was like where he, he did draw it in and it actually had a point to the story where he said, even casual readers of Sherlock Holmes would have recognized the symptoms of, you know, the convulsions. Yeah. And here's a doctor dismissing uh, the, the witness testimony because she was a drunk and, and it was just alcoholism. And even though delirium tremor, the DTs, I can't say that word, DTs don't cause that kind of a, of a convulsion. Oh, pish tosh, just drunk prostitutes, pish. So I do appreciate the fact that he he made note to point that out. And, and I thought that was well done of him. I, I find it strange that I have to like give applause to people when they're not sexist snobs, you know, but he did very much point out the, the double standard that these women were treated with and how yeah. the women were frowned upon for being prostitutes, but the men were blameless because, yeah. you know. And uh, Cream didn't solely target prostitutes, though. One of them worked as a waitress or something like that. I mean, he didn't. It didn't. While while uh, the witness uh, statements, you know, would always come back about how he oh he expressed such a hatred of prostitutes and wiped them wanted to wipe them all in the face of the earth. Not all of his victims were prostitutes. But yeah. they were all in an unfortunate way, which meant they were of loose character. And I find it interesting that he, you know, they, he has that same, you're a prostitute, you're pregnant, you're valueless, but he frequented prostitutes all the time with no judgment on him. You know, like doing it with a prostitute is not a moral judgment, but being a prostitute is, that's right. that, you know. Yeah. But so like the women, other than the the man he killed for the, the, the wife, uh, sorry, the husband of, you know, the one that got him into Joliet, uh, most of the women that he killed were either prostitutes or they had come to him seeking abortions, which meant they were, quote unquote, loose women right. or possibly supplementing their income via subsistence level prostitution. One of the nitpicky things I have is uh, with the attempted murder of Louisa Harvey. So 
Um, earlier on in the story, we're told this is the woman who he gave uh, the strychnine pills to on the Thames and Vic, and she didn't acted take like she took them and slipped them away. And um, he didn't, he believed that she had in fact taken those. So um, then uh, Louisa Harvey says that she saw him on a street a few days later. He actually, or a week later or something, he actually took her out to dinner and had drinks with her, not recognizing her as the person that he had slipped the pills to just a couple of days prior. And she said to him, don't you know who I am? And he says, no. And so she uh, said, well, I'm Lou Harvey. And he quickly spun around and, and, and Walk uh, off. walked quickly away. And the author says, you know, Cream had just seen a ghost, right? But then later on, when we get to the, the inquest and Louisa Harvey, now married, reads in the paper that they think that she's dead, um, says, no, I'm not dead. And she, uh, so she writes a letter to the coroner and everything, and then she walks in the court. The author seems to forget that he had already said that Cream, assumingly, was aware that she was still alive. And, well, no, the and way so that her I presence that was... in the courtroom wouldn't have necessarily, he might be shocked to see that she's there, but not shocked to discover that he hadn't killed her. The timeline Unless... for that wasn't the next week. He had, he had come back around to meeting her, I thought it was a few weeks or months after the, the original attempted poisoning. And in the interim, he had hired somebody to try to find out information about her death. And that's how they found out about Louisa Harvey. So Cream didn't know that they were looking for Louisa Harvey because they, had got, they hadn't gotten that information from Cream. They had gotten that information from somebody saying that Cream had asked him to look into the death of a woman at, around the theater at that time. And right. that, so- I mean, But that's not brought up. That's not- brought up later at the trial when she makes this grand entrance and becomes the I mean at the inquest to to become like the star witness um it's set up as if it should it was a complete surprise to everyone that she was still yeah. alive I, I I I read it as the cream was so off his face during yeah. the first meeting and the second meeting that he probably, you know, either didn't realize it happened or thought So when, when Cream, it. you know, Cream had just seen a ghost. Well, he um, was taking so much drugs and everything. That he who might not have recognized when he her. Killed, so I just when he thought there was didn't recognize it and then didn't, but maybe he didn't believe it happened afterwards is how I Yeah, read. that's not um, made clear though. It, yeah. it seems to, the author seems to suggest that Cream would have, realized he hadn't killed her yeah. by cream had just seen a ghost it should have been made clear that you know he probably still didn't know who she was yeah or so, yeah or, yeah or, you know asking did cream not realize who she was did he think it was a yeah. Or, oh, yeah well he was clearly churning victims and because like there was that one where the two women that he had arranged to meet were sitting there waiting to meet him and he walks by them following the other woman that he ended up murdering i think that was was that donna i don't remember which one it was but remember there were two women who said that they were sitting there waiting to meet him he walks past them following a victim up into her house yeah. And and they watched and they ended up becoming trial. That you know, would have been uh, the Clover murder. That, yes, right? yeah, that was it. 
And yeah. so it's like he was clearly churning victims left and right. And obviously with the copious amounts of drugs and his gen- general mental state, who knows what he knew at what point in time. Because Right, he was just completely out of his head. I think that could have been better explained. Yeah, I didn't, um, I don't remember that part to be honest. I, I didn't I didn't get it the sense of it was being a surprise to Cream uh, that she I, I think it was a surprise to the police because I think at that time they were doing everything from the he was the author was writing everything from the perspective of the police and they were shocked that she was alive because they thought Cream thought she was dead because he was looking for a body. And so I, I'll have to go back and reread that part. I don't, I don't remember it being specifically a surprise to Cream at that mm-hmm. time, other but than I, you know her showing I, up in the. Do courtroom. you guys agree that that um, hit Cream's drug use and his inebriation throughout all of this could have been better fleshed out? Because with, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't always thinking of of um, Cream's state of mind necessarily when, when yeah. the murders were being described. Although witnesses said that, you know, he, he overindulged in drugs and alcohol and everything. I felt like that could have, that should have been emphasized more and more. Yeah, it was implicit you know? rather than explicit, I think. Mm-hmm. That he, was, he was completely off his face. All right, around. yeah. Well, you can't really do a witness testimony to the murders because obvi- what his state of mind was during the murders, because obviously there wasn't really witnesses <laughs> yeah but but like everybody like you know like when he was coming over in passage on the boat everybody you know all the witnesses were talking about his drug use and how he was drunk and i mean you can rocker and... i mean you you can theorize um you know the author could theorize you know that he was in that state but yeah it's you know without knowing for certain but you know you know probably was so but can um... you imagine how many women he must have been churning in order to not a walk right past two he's supposed to be meeting following a third victim like uh, he 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 clearly was not firing on all cylinders beyond his you know psychopathy and Uh, how many and just how much how much stalking he would have actually done i mean it seems like hunting victims over the course of this 10 months or something like that between the time he left uh, Chicago to uh, Joliet to um, his arrest. I mean, he was a full-time, he didn't, it didn't seem like he practiced much medicine. Well, yeah, I was, the, I, I, I was, UK, was he practicing he was a, medicine during that time? Right. He was a, seemed to just be full, a full-time stock, stalker living off yeah. of his, his inheritance. Yeah. I found it interesting, you know, um, uh, the 10 homicides that he was, uh, that he com- we know he committed, he was only convicted of committing two of them. He, and I have written down here, he went on trial for a third and was charged with three more, presumably the ones in the United States. I found it interesting that the political uh, pressure, bribery that went into getting him out of prison for the first time, I would have loved to have seen a little bit more in depth follow-up as to did anybody get in trouble for that like later on in life you he, he had that brief mention of you know if you let a tiger out and it kills people wh- what you know bur- that's a burden on you there should be some culpability there and the people who bribed the Joliet officials and and the the governor to to release him knowing that he was a calculated for-profit murderer 
I would have liked to have known what soul wrestling when it, you know, and I'm sure we'll never know. We never right. will. That's a, that's a, that's an internal psychological wrestle with your own soul kind of a thing. But did they ever think about all the people that died because of their decisions? I would have loved, I would love, you know, these are the, I'm more interested in the psychology that surrounds crime. And uh, that's something I would have really liked to have known. Yeah. And the Scotland Yard fumbling we we see it all the time in police investigations, you know, where, oh, well, only, if only the cops would have pursued this lead that they were given rather than burying it in the filing cabinet or whatever, we could have saved all of these people's lives. You know, if Rodney Alcala had, hadn't uh, only done two years of his initial sentence, 20 women wouldn't have been killed. So you always see this Monday night, Monday Monday, Tuesday day, Tuesday Monday night morning quarter, Monday morning quarter, whatever it's called, football reference uh, against uh, the police department. And Scotland Yard was the same way. You know, they uh, were embarrassed over their failure to catch the Ripper, so they trumpeted their success in um, apprehending Cream. But yet they they bumbled their way um, through the Cream investigation by disregarding the uh, blackmail letters that if they had paid attention and followed up could have saved several women's lives. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just a fortunate thing that Cream wasn't actually a very good criminal. Right. Because he bumbled his way through, through the crimes. <laughs> That's well, and, I, and I think that the first blackmail letter uh, accusing Dr. Broadbent of committing the Clover murders he signed Dr. Cream. He gave his real name. So that was one of the things that um, because he signed his real name and Broadbent went to Scotland Yard and said, hey, I received this letter. Like, oh, OK, thank you. Looked at it and uh, followed away. I, I, that, I do wonder how many other people did he try to blackmail who never came forward, who just looked at the letter and burned them straight away? Or Yeah. Um, who knows? But I, I think that, you know, when um, I don't remember if the author made the point or if that the press were making the point that, you know, Cream is is worse than Jack the Ripper. It's interesting how all three of us and I assume most other people know very little about the Cream case, but we know everything there is to know backwards and forwards about the Ripper case. But this guy uh, and the author makes this point not i mean he tortured his victims a hell of a lot more victims than the ripper probably uh murdered but the ripper just quickly murdered them cream tortured these women through slow painful deaths and then tried to profit off of their murders yeah that that's how i feel about um george chapman i yeah. think i think he was worse than the ripper what he did to those women uh, you know over over weeks he mm -hmm. slowly poisoned them it's, so it, it, it says a lot about just the mystery because the Ripper was never caught. The mystery of the killer, obviously, is what elevates the, that, the Whitechapel murders. Yeah. I, 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 think it's also status. The press. I think it's also the press coverage and the fear and stuff like that, which I don't think ever existed in the Lambeth case. There was no this fear, who, you know, who will he strike next? It's not safe for women to go out and, you know. Right. Because even though it's a torture murder and the women suffered extremely, it's a contained murder. 
Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, there's there's a very visceral reaction to the idea of your throat being cut and your your innards being outward. You know, ex- that is a, a visual image that instills horror. Whereas people died of food poisoning all the time back then. We didn't have food storage. We didn't have the case of the salmon sandwiches, which we will all be reading soon and and figure, you know, it was, it wasn't an uncommon way to die. Yeah. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like it was more of a, that could happen to anybody murder or not. You could eat a dodgy piece of fish and you're dead. Um, So it wasn't so much the horror of the unknown like, don't get me wrong. Like, nobody wants to be like, everybody don't, don't murder me. You know, the horror of murder. But do you know what I'm saying? It, it's a more primitive. Yeah. Jack the Ripper was a butcher. I, I think like, nobody's well. afraid there of is... driving a car. Even though there's car accidents every single day where people get horribly mangled. We're accustomed to dying like that. That's, a, that's yeah. an accepted yeah. risk. Whereas... Butchering, butchering a woman on the street, um, even though it's quick and relatively painless for the victim probably is is much more terrifying than s- someone being slipped a pill in the privacy of a bedroom and yeah there is an element of victim blaming going on as well because you know oh i'm a doctor says you know take this pill okay you know it's i, I think there's an element of that going on too well, that was even mentioned in the book a bit where they were the 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 copper was like uh why would you take a pill that somebody gave fred gave you and they were like he was a doctor right he told me to take this pill and you know there i know people who go to their doctor all the time and today even today they take the prescription they go to the pharmacy and they get their prescription filled and then they go home and they take it and they don't research the pill. They don't read anything about it. They don't find out if it has any interactions with anything they're currently taking. And they just take what the doctor tells them to take. Yeah. And, 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 and like with cream, he'd like, you know, he, he preferred to live in these slums and, and he'd run, he'd rent a, a room from a landlady. And then within the week, he'd be engaged to the landlady's daughter, all because he yeah. was a doctor. He, he, because he, doctors he had the status back then. They could walk yeah. in the slums, protected. Right. They were revered. Yeah. But again, I, I, I don't want to sound offensive, but he he did look a bit weird. You know, it, it's, oh, he must have been quite weird. charming to get over the fact that, you know, he was, you know, cross-eyed and, you know, again, I, I don't want to sound offensive, but, we you know. people taking horse deworming pills right this now because Facebook told them to. You th- like This you, is true. You, you put a level of judgment into people that the, the vast majority of the population does not actually possess. There's not a lot of discernment in what people will put into their bodies. Like, just like yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, people, oh, I'm not taking that vaccine, you know, because of, you know, I, I've researched it to the people who's vaping God knows what chemicals they bought from some dodgy looking store. The gas station. Of two days ago. Not even the gas yeah. station. You know. We've got these specialist vaping stores around you where literally someone's just rented out the store and put a counter and they, they, they sell vape juice. You're thinking, you don't fucking well, know what you're doing. Drugs from some dodgy per- Well, not you. I don't mean specifically you, but people will buy drugs, meth, what have you, from, you know, random people on the street corner. You know, you don't know what that's cut with. You don't know what, you know, has gone into that. 
people aren't necessarily, especially if you're an addict, especially if you're, um, you know, in the lower rungs, you're not necessarily discerning as yeah. to what, what, what you consume, let's just say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I was um, I was reading last night because I started watching um, a uh, a TV drama about the um, Novichok poisonings in Salisbury, mm-hmm. and the only person who died from that um, died four months later because she was an addict who used to scavenge from bins and stuff, and um, her and her boyfriend or whatever scavenged a bottle of perfume from a bin. And that was what the no and it sprayed it on herself, and it was the pure undiluted Novichok for the assassins chucked in a bin somewhere. Oh, hmm. uh. I, you know, it's it, it is you know victim blaming goes along with pretty much everything that we do yep. in these days because it's a self protective mechanism. We all want to believe that we'd be smarter than to get ourselves into that situation. Oh well, I would never leave my drink unattended in a bar. So if you got roofied, well, clearly you were careless. And again, that is not a mindset I subscribe to. I am not saying that I subscribe to that mindset, but there is that kind of like, we need to believe as people that we would never have ourselves in that situation. We're smart enough not to fall for that. We're smart enough not to get scammed. We're smart enough not to have our password be password. We're smart enough not to, there, we have to believe to protect ourselves that we can avoid calamity. So we have to blame the people that calamity befalls. It protects us psychologically from believing that would ever happen to us. Much like we all get into cars every day and drive at 80 miles down the road, believing we're never gonna be in a car accident even though we pass them every day on the street because that would never happen to me because XYZ kind of thing. Well, that, well that's literally my job. I am uh, I, I I process car insurance claims. So it's <laughs> you know it can happen to you. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean I don't I don't like on the one hand it's like oh my gosh I can't believe you're that dumb because I do I do it too. Because like sometimes yeah. you just have to shake your head and go, really? You took course dewormer okay well enjoy your intestines while they last you know like what, yeah. what can, you know like. so with you know with um one of the victims who didn't take the pills you know he had said to her oh you know i see you have some complexion issue going on on your forehead you know i can give you something for that meet me uh tomorrow at x time and x place and i'll give you some pills to help cure that, clean up that complexion. Well, if you just had like a dinner, a dinner date and drinks with a medical doctor and they did say something like that to you at the end of the night, what would the, I mean, unless he did act in the cream's case, he, she thought he was a little shifty, but if he was a little smoother of an operator, then I could see possibly a, a, a person just going along with him hmm. wouldn't you and victorians are quite big on their you know their lotions and potions and their powders and their cures and stuff like that wouldn't they it was a big cultural thing in yeah or in london especially um, yeah. so i wanted uh since this is a, a ostensibly a ripper podcast um i want to bring up some of the ripper connections cream is a ripper suspect mainly because him supposedly saying, I am Jack, 
dot, 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 as the last words uh, he spoke on the scaffold, right, as the, the door as dropped. A, as apparently every murderer hung in the, you know, 1890s did, really. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many of them, isn't there? Yes, he, he escaped from prison, went over to London. He had killed. a body double uh, sneak into prison so he could leave, right? Yeah, that, yeah. That. I know what it is. It's like that. It's like that last episode of of the BBC series Sherlock with uh, eggs, bandaged, cute cabbage patch dolls, um, where his 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 sister is actually sneaking out of the top secret um, uh, high security prison in order to impersonate women and uh, and do things. Yeah. Well, she wasn't. No, see, she wasn't sneaking out. She had beguiled the headmaster not the headmaster that's for a school what do you call it <laughs> she had beguiled the warden and he was just letting her stroll out there was no sneaking her powers of persuasion are so grand that he'll just let her stroll in and out at her leisure so so um, i thought the yeah. author did a so um in case our listeners don't know um uh james bellington the uh, executioner is credited with saying um that he overheard cream's last words being i am jack before he died um and i and i thought the author did a good job of saying that this was nonsense um Mm -hmm. how it this was first reported in in the press nine years after cream's execution and after billington himself was dead yeah and no one else who's a witness to the execution had ever claimed to have heard these same words so everything points to that just being a press invention right i thought yeah. that um i was i was pleased to see him um bunk that um myth and uh not that cream has ever been really taken seriously as a ripper suspect but um that was nice and the the some of the other ripper connections were um that his attorney, Gogan, was Israel Lipsky's lead attorney, mm-hmm. apparently. And then, but he had like a terrible drinking problem, this author claims. And, and that's why he dropped out on the eve of Israel Lipsky's trial. I haven't read um, Mark Ripper's um, Trial of Israel Lipsky, Notable Trial Series book. I don't know if he talks about um, Gogan and, and why he dropped out of the Lipsky case. Um, but according to uh, Job, uh, it was because he like was way way too drunk um, in the preparation for Lipsky's trial. Uh, Cream ends up picking him up, and um, then we have the same. It's weird how um, in the United States, uh, because it's such a big country, you know, we we have obviously different judges, different attorneys, just. Uh, in most cases, different expert witnesses. It's only like in the biggest high profile cases do we get like a Henry Lee or someone testifying, um, which I guess is the same kind of thing. In, in Victorian British crime, you do see these reoccurring same judges, same expert t- witnesses, same attorneys, you know, and uh, case after case. And um, so the expert witness on chemistry in the cream trial is the same one who testified at the Florence Maybach trial. Um, so you get these names, you know, being repeated. And then, of course, as we were talking at the beginning of this thing, Jarvis is the big one. And those, those who, not, who aren't familiar with Jarvis's um, quasi role in the Ripper investigation, I guess you would say, is that 
Jarvis comes up because he arrived in New York City a week before Francis Tumblety arrived in New York City. And so um, Jarvis uh, is frequently mentioned in the story of Tumblety's uh, flight back to New York because Jarvis was there reportedly investigating the Times lawsuit against Parnell and Parnell's involvement in the Phoenix Park murders and then meets with Inspector Andrews and Superintendent Shore. So anyone who's familiar with the, the seems like a decades long debate as to whether Andrews was sent to New York City to investigate Tumblety as a ripper suspect, or was he sent to, you know, aid Jarvis in the arrest of uh, Thomas Barton, who was the master forger of stock certificates or whatever. You guys are familiar with this debate, right? Or maybe maybe it's just relegated to the Tumblety threads, but R.J. Palmer has written about it, uh, Wolf Vanderlyn. Simon Wood devotes like 50 pages to Jarvis's non-involvement in the hunt for Tumblety in New York and this whole um, and, and Deconstructing Jack talks about the unlikelihood of Jarvis being in Philadelphia one week and then traveling uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles to Kansas City the next week and then going up all the way up to Montreal the following week finds it implausible. But when you read uh, the Cream book about Jarvis's movements, you do see that same kind of a pattern. That's why I was saying earlier that a book on Jarvis would be pretty good because he goes, He's in Philadelphia and, and gets a, a memo to head up to Toronto. So he's on the, boom, he's on the next train to Toronto, you know, and he's just hopscotching all around the northern portion of the United States and southern portion of Canada for like three straight months, right? What must the budget have been for this investigation? It's mind-blowing, really, how much that must have cost. To... Oh, yeah. So Jarvis... Uh, I found uh, Jarvis was an interesting character. Um, and he's the one who, uh, Aberline, Jarvis, Aberline had retired and Jarvis was investigating, back in the UK, investigating a bank robbery or something like that. All hell breaks loose on the street when Jarvis and a couple of those other officers are trying to arrest these guys. And a retired Aberline sees this happening on the street and jumps into the fray and um, AIDS and they all get the shit beat out of them, but they're able to successfully uh, capture these bank robbers and everything, which is a pretty, pretty cool episode. And Jarvis was at uh, Aberline's retirement party. So it was, it was cool to read a, this book about Cream and Jarvis, you know, um, because of Jarvis's, because uh, I'm the familiarity um, that I have with him about the Ripper case and everything. So, all right. So, final thoughts on Cream and what would be your rating out of five stars? How many stars would you give the Cream book? Um, um three and three quarters was my my five out of five uh, out of five stars. Three and three quarters. Um, I enjoyed the book overall. Um, as I mentioned, I did find the um, the first third of it say quite confusing um but then once the the what the author's intention was you know i i kind of got into it a bit more after that um and uh, no, I, I learned a lot of a cream that you know i didn't i said didn't know much about him so um 
yeah, I, I overall enjoyed. Uh, I'll give it four stars. Um, I think that it, up until now, that it has to be considered the definitive book on the cream murders. There's more information than one would ever think they ever wanted to know. It's just chock full of information on the cream case, more than I I, uh, I ever knew before. So, but I agree with John that struggling with the structure of the book throughout the, probably the first half was an issue. But then the I think that after you get through his early years that appear in the center of the book, the second half of the book really picks up and um, and I quite enjoyed it. So. For me, I think I agree with John Reese that this was um, a solid B minus. So 3.75 sounds about right to me. I think it was a solid read. It was held back from being, you know, a great book by the structure issues, which we've all discussed, of course. But I found it to be a solid read. You know, I thought it was very interesting. It held my attention and it was well written. And I would definitely recommend it to anybody who was interested in either the genre of the Victorian murder detective or in specifically the case of the murderous Dr. Cream. All right. So this concludes the book club portion of our episode. And I would like to thank the Johns for joining me to discuss the case of the murderous Dr. Cream by Dean Job. And now we are fortunate to have the author himself joining us to discuss the book and to answer some of the questions that arose during our discussion. Thank you, Mr. Job, for joining us, and we appreciate you being here. Thank you. So what would you say is the thing that attracted you to the Dr. Cream case in the first place? And what made you think that he was an interesting enough character to warrant a book about? Well, I, um, I do a lot of historic, uh, historical true crime, and uh, he's one of those shadowy, uh, really uh, horrific figures that it's impossible to miss either coming across uh, uh, the odd uh, newspaper uh, uh, report uh, of the time or uh, just seeing him in an anthology. And uh, what fascinated me, fascinated me about him was how this killer could get away with so many murders in so many countries. Uh, my research suggests, and I'm pretty confident to say at least 10 murders in three countries. So that's really what fascinated me about it. Um, there's the whole backstory or obviously context of, of a murderous doctor. There's uh, the way he was able to pray mostly, most of his victims were young women, uh, many of them seeking an abortion and trusting him and uh, to, their, to their peril. Um, but also uh, uh, just uh, what was the state of forensics? What was the state of detection and policing? Where were the mistakes made? I mean, this is a man who was even spent almost 10 years in prison and still was freed to kill again. And, uh, and of course, and this will be obviously of interest to the club, there's the uh, bizarre and, and uh, absolutely incredible idea that he could have been, or he's, he's often been listed as a suspect, uh, as possibly being Jack the Ripper. But of course, I mean, we did discuss that in our, in our book club session where he was in prison and there was this whole, like, what did he, did he sneak out, go over to London? And so, I mean, obviously he's, it, it was the hanging sentence that, that the apocryphal hanging sentence that, that makes him a suspect, but I don't think anybody truly considers him. And we did appreciate the fact that you made it clear that this is not a likely scenario because so many people 
come up with the wildest theories around this case and the most unlikely suspects. So one of the things we did mention was that we very much appreciated that you didn't try to um, sensationalize this by going, he could have been Jack the Ripper, which a lot of people would have tried to plump up. We appreciate facts on our podcast as opposed to speculative. I'm uh, I'm all about fact. And uh, I was curious where this came from. So I I was able to track it back, as I point out in the book, to about 1902. So 10 years after he's executed uh, with this very short story saying that he had said, I am Jack the, and was cut off, as you know, in in mid-sentence when the trap was sprung and he was hanged. Well, I mean, even the idea that this wouldn't have been uh, major news in uh, the, uh, you know, major news at the time, uh, you know, is ludicrous. And as well with the hangman who's supposedly the only person who heard it conveniently dead by then, well, anyway, it's just, it's actually, a, it's, it's, a, it's another example or a study in how fake news or, or uh, legends get, get created and propagated. Because once that was picked up, it just took on a life of its own. And instead of anyone looking and saying, this is ludicrous, it was a matter of, well, what information, however bizarre, can we cobble together to support this theory? And it is, I mean, we're sort of dealing with that with a situation within the Ripper community now where someone, you know, if people don't know the facts and they just hear a good story, they cling to the good story and they don't have time to go research the facts. They don't really care about the facts. They hear a good story. It sounds like a good story. They don't recognize that, you know, an author, not you, I'm speaking about a different scenario. An author has their own motivation for perpetuating that story and twisting the facts a little bit. And let, you know, a good story is way more interesting than boring old dull facts. And so it's, it's, it's very easy for the good story to take on a life of its own, irrespective of the facts. And, and just it, it, it lives long after the truth has died. And it's so bizarre in the context of detection. Isn't that what uh, police are faulted for all the time? Is, is uh, tunnel vision, is trying to make the facts fit their theory? Uh, so there's an irony there that... Uh, uh, that uh, the Dr. Cream, who clearly was in prison. I mean, I've seen the prison records. I've seen when he was released in uh, in 1891, three years after the Ripper crimes. But but it, fundamentally, the, there's also a, a bigger problem. He may have preyed on on uh, sex workers in a downtrodden area of London, like Jack the Ripper. But he was a serial poisoner. He didn't, he didn't, uh, he didn't kill like Jack the Ripper did. So there's some superficial similarities, but um, the way I think I could put it, if I didn't put it in the book, I'll put it now is he's got an ironclad alibi. He was on the other side of the Atlantic sitting in a prison cell. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) One of the things that um, we, uh, one of our um, book club members, Jonathan Menges, the uh, host of RipperCast, he is fascinated by Jarvis, Inspector Jarvis. He he literally stated that he finds Jarvis to be a far more interesting character than Cream. And especially with all the tie-ins to the Jack the Ripper case and all all the, the sort of minor little cases he's been involved with historically. Did you find out anything interesting? He wanted to know specifically if you'd found out anything interesting about Jarvis in your research, perhaps that couldn't make it into the book just because it didn't fit, but would be a good little story. And he believes that Jarvis needs a book of his own. I did, I did, I did use a lot of, there are several memoirs written by uh, uh, Scotland Yard detectives, McNaughton's one of them, 
Um, but they don't tend to mention a lot about Jarvis. I did find some, some great descriptions uh, of him, uh, his sharp mind, uh, even a joke that he was the biggest man in the yard because he was quite tall. And I did, I did try to mine as much of that material as I could. He comes alive in, in my book, I think, just through his methodical uh, investigation. And for, for people who aren't quite there in the book yet, perhaps, Jarvis is sent over once Cream is, is arrested for the, his final murders in London in 1892. It uh, information starts coming to Scotland Yard, tips from the media uh, of the press in America, uh, de detection, uh, detective, Pinkerton's detective agency that had dealt with Cream earlier, uh, saying this fellow has a, a past you've got to know about previous murders, and without having any idea of the scale, uh, Scotland Yard sent Jarvis to America and Canada, saying find out and. Uh, so I was able to really reconstruct Cream's whole backstory through the eyes of Jarvis's investigation. And, uh, and what, what exists on Jarvis in the context of this case are, is just a, a sheath of reports, uh, almost, uh, uh, almost daily reports back to his superiors, long handwritten documents, just outlining uh, witnesses he talked to, information he verified, dead ends he'd run into as he was getting instructions on where to go for his next uh, uh, investigation. So he's looking into Cream's background in Canada, uh, two earlier uh, uh, sudden deaths that are almost undoubtedly were poisonings Cream committed in Canada, as many as uh, four murders in the Chicago area uh, before he even gets to London and, and does his final rampage in, uh, in Lambeth. One of the things that I was interested in, and again, this would be things where it might have been background details that you weren't able to include in the book just because they didn't fit, was I found it interesting how much sort of political maneuvering, bribery, we would might even say a little bit, went into releasing uh, Cream originally from Illinois. And I, and I wondered, did you, was there any soul wrestling by any of the people involved in releasing him? I think you made the comparison, I'm going to butcher this entirely in your book of uh, if you release a tiger from a cage and it kills people, you, you, uh, you have a moral culpability there. And I was wondering if, if there was any acknowledgement of the people who, I mean, he was a poisoner for profit, like a cold-blooded poisoner for profit. And there was multiple things in his past that pointed to him having had priors, was there anybody who ever acknowledged the, the, the mistake of, yeah, maybe we should not have, you know, let him out? Maybe was there any sort of thing like that of the internal soul wrestling that I hope they wrestled with for the remainder of their days of these numerous women who were murdered because they let him out? Well, the comment about unleashing a tiger and who's culpable if it kills uh, is actually Arthur Conan Doyle who uh, was a, obviously is, is in the background of this book, Sherlock Holmes, the whole rise of, of the uh, super detective uh, that comes about at the same time. And, I, and I, another tie-in is, of course, Holmes's famous line, the, a doctor who, uh, who turns to crime is the first of criminals. He has motive and he has, uh, he has the nerve and he has the, the methods. So, um, well, but uh, there was, um, it was hard actually to trace this bribery allegation. Uh, I mean, I want to be, I want to be fair and I want to be accurate. And it wasn't something that anybody at the time really seemed to want to acknowledge. But there was press coverage saying money changed hands. The uh, 
family did admit that several thousands of dollars were put into the final push to get him out of prison, uh, whether that was bribery money or was used to fund legal fees. I think I make a convincing case that it was way more than you'd need for legal fees. But interestingly, mm -hmm. even the prosecutor who put him away for 10 years turned out to suddenly change uh, his point of view and say cream should be released. It is caught up with the fact he'd already served 10 years, even though he was a life sentence, it wasn't uncommon for, uh, for uh, murderers to get uh, some kind of early release. And the governor, Pfeiffer, uh, was a strong, uh, not opponent of capital punishment, but uh, was very much concerned that juries might act out of prejudice. So a few things came together, but there was certainly an allegation of, of many thousands of dollars changing hands to get Cream's release. And I do believe that happened. So uh, there did seem to be some uh, uh, concern, certainly some uh, consternation uh, or embarrassment to the family that their solution, uh, when Cream initially gets out of Joliet, he comes to Quebec. Uh, back home, but his family don't know what to do with him. He's erratic. They think he's gone insane. And their their instinct isn't to get him help. Their instinct is to put him on a ship and send him back to London, a city he knew from his, his medical training, and essentially downloaded the problem. Uh, I, can, I, can, I think we can assume that there had to be a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of remorse within the family, for basically having unleashed him to kill four more times. Yeah, it, like I said, the psychology is what draws me to crime more than anything else because it's just sort of the most extreme examples. And this is one where you want, you sort of want that. I want to know you've suffered <laughs> for your choices. <laughs> like I want to I know. know that there was some regret there, that there was some acknowledgement. But of course, a hundred years removed of history, you're never going to know. It's you just have to like hope. <laughs> well, actually, the, the authorities in Britain, after his verdict, there is a brief push to try to get Cream's uh, death sentence commuted to life in prison in England, saying that, you know, that his mental illness, that he was insane, but he didn't plead insanity at trial. So the verdict was guilty of murder. But uh, the Home Office officials in London who were reviewing his file before deciding that the, the ultimate penalty would, penalty would go ahead. They even said, well, if he was insane, why did his family ship him over to England? So that actually worked against them. But uh, uh, the uh, maybe the most telling sort of uh, final point on that is that, that in digging into the church records, because Cream was a very, in his early life, a very devout Presbyterian. His family were very devout. He actually sang in a church choir in Quebec City. But in the church archives, there's genealogies of various families. And for the Creams family, he's listed as the unfortunate son of, of William and, uh, and Mary Cream. So uh, unfortunate doesn't seem to quite capture the horror of it. Uh, but there are bits and pieces that give you a sense of just how horrible it must have been to have, uh, to have this taint on the family to have this uh, a killer on this scale as, as your brother or uncle or, or son. I found it interesting. Um, we always hear about poison being a woman's weapon. And I found it interesting. There, there were several references to murderous doctors who use 
poison as their and, and usually it was for profit or greed or or, or something of that nature but uh and that sort of made me think like well how did we get to this conclusion because like there seemed to be you, you referenced a few different doctors in your book who were caught poisoning uh people and i'm it's an interesting thing to me because on the one hand we discussed how doctors were revered and as you said you, with your medical bag you could walk down the worst streets and, and it and it provided a shield for you and on the other hand they were using this facade of respectability to cover up some very heinous acts and uh i just i thought that was very interesting i hadn't realized quite the, to the degree to which doctors were using poison as a as a murder method in in that day and it, it, i mean if i were a murderous doctor that would obviously be my the, the easiest choice before you know like you said before they knew how to check check for strychnine or and all of this developing technology that didn't exist back then but i did find that interesting and like were you surprised in researching i would assume you you discovered this as well researching the cream just how many doctors uh, apparently were using this as a method of murder and you're right there was sort of a sense in the in the coverage of the time commentary that this wasn't sporting this wasn't really the kind of thing a man should do that this was yes a, a woman's weapon um but of course doctors um in the in the hands of a doctor i mean poison is the most lethal weapon of all if you think about it a doctor knows not just what's lethal but exactly how much cream used his medical and uh, training and expertise to know that he could put it in a gelatin capsule pass it off as real medicine and induce people to take strychnine uh, this this highly toxic poison that was also so bitter that you couldn't even put it in coffee and pass it off people wouldn't drink it so he used his medical expertise and uh, also and what's even more horrific is knows exactly the excruciating death it's going to inflict but perhaps one of the reasons that it's also a, it's it's a sneaky way of killing i mean there's nothing sneaky about jack the ripper he may have slunk around the streets of london uh, preying on his victims but what he did was up close and personal uh, a poisoner like cream especially a trusted doctor could say take this pill before bedtime and be long gone and hard to catch if there's no description if the only person who's really seen him is the victim apparently he took some perverted pleasure knowing exactly what this was going to do to his victims yeah we were we were also not impressed in the sense but it impressed upon us how how many victims potential victims he must have been churning like trying to because there was that one scene where there's two women sitting there waiting for him and he walks past following a third up into her yeah. house and then he didn't even recognize uh lou harvey he didn't recognize her when he ran into her so that we were like just how many women he must have been churning trying to uh I, one of the questions that we had in, in addition to that was how much do you think the drug and alcohol use that he was consuming played into his mental state because how do you try to kill somebody and then not recognize them <laughs> a few weeks later so do you do you think that there was significant amounts of i don't want to say brain damage but brain damage happening due to his copious drug use well i i tried to 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 look for evidence 
what what made him what he was? Was it something in his upbringing? Or was it his medical uh, training? Was it being trapped into an early marriage and apparently being able to uh, poison his way out of that? I think all of the above. But as well, this uh, this drug use. And, you know, 10 years hard labor in a, in a uh, just a, a dungeon-like prison. Uh, all of this may have preyed on his mind. It's very clear that he was drug-addled at times. People who, who uh, casual acquaintances in London did find him erratic at times. So I think it maybe did play in, and it's amazing. Yes, he, a woman, he tried to poison a woman he thought he poisoned. Um, he, meets, she, he meets her on the street again, and he acts like he doesn't know her. Maybe that was the shock. I'm not sure. But it did seem like uh, he did then continue to believe this woman was dead. Um, it does, and it does get back to your earlier question, it raises a possibility that I wanted to grapple with is, could there have been more victims out there? Many of the places he practiced, I even, it's at times, consulted every, uh, when I could, I consulted every coroner's inquest record, looking for either a reference to him as being the doctor, or a sudden death from poisoning or strychnine poisoning. I ended up comfortable with the 10, but I did look for others. And what I think is, while there may have been other victims, there's even a more chilling aspect to the conclusion that there were 10. How many more victims, potential victims, how many more women did he almost toy with? Did he maybe not give a lethal amount to? And, there, and there's a couple of cases where women believed that he gave them something that sickened them, but didn't kill them. Was it a failed murder or was he just playing God? And, and there seemed to be that aspect. I mean, he had this chilling facet to his personality where he may he seems to have enjoyed picking and choosing who would live and who would die and I really think there's an element of that here I mean he killed two women in one night and hadn't killed for months before that um had he and by, by all accounts had many encounters with uh, sex workers in Lambeth so it does seem to lead the conclusion that there were a lot of people who could have been victims and he just decided not today well, we don't want to give you, well, obviously, spoiler alert, he hangs in the end. In He's not still own. out there. I do want to, I do want to calm people's fears. Yeah. He's not 180 years old and still stalking or anything like that. <laughs> so I, I don't want to like sandbag you or make you feel like, you know, I, I tricked you or anything into coming on. So I'm going to tell you that we did spend some time, all three of us, um, and, and if you don't want this, you, you know, we don't have to address it overly much. A significant part of our book club, it was the beginning part of it, we dealt with um, our dislikes of the books. The three of us all had our one main quibble, the only significant quibble. I, you know, I don't like to read true crime because generally speaking, um, true crime writing tends to be garbage. It's terrible. It's just written like on a fourth grade level if that um we did not find that with your book at all i found the writing very engaging i thought it was very well written um the only quibble we all had was we did not like the structure of how it was written and and uh, we said this on the podcast so i, I like i said i don't want it to be like a shock to you and, and we did spend some time on it because all three of us did have this quibble and i thought it was an, an editorial decision and and i i disagree with your editor the editor if this was an editorial decision but um we, we did not like the structure because we found it a little chaotic. Like we all found it a little bit distracting at times because it was still a very engaging book. It was still very well written, um, but we did spend a lot of time on it just because all three of us were kind of 
we all felt the same thing that it was a little bit hopscotchy through the time periods. Um, that was our main quibble. I thought it was an editorial decision. I could be completely wrong in that, that, you know, I, I, I sort of felt like it read, like it started out as sort of a linear narrative biography. And then we sort of decided to, to rework it a little bit in the editorial process. And there should have been a little bit more selective pulling out and putting stuff other places. That was my opinion, which again, I'm not saying is the king all queen all of, of opinions. And so I did just want to let you, if you want to address it, you know, you can be like, yeah, I made that choice. Deal with it. That's totally fine. You don't, you don't have to write to impress. Well, me. I, uh, I, I'm happy to address the question because if you like the structure, it was my idea. If you have quibbles about it, it was my editor's <laughs> idea. Actually, but I just like to talk about it. The goal was, or the, the intent was to shake it up a bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think of some of the great shows you watch on Netflix, you know, um, you'll see a scene and you're like, what exactly is going on here? And, and even if it's an episode and you know the characters, you're not quite sure how did they get to this point three weeks earlier. Maybe it's right. easier to do on screen. But my editor, my editor Algonquin, just simply thought, what could we do to shake it up? Because I had thought of it more as a linear uh, progression. But she was looking for a way to to get to uh, the London murders, and then is there a way to do the backstory? And that's where I thought Jarvis was a brilliant device, uh, simply because, as you said, you can uncover Cream's background as Scotland Yard is is uh, um, is uncovering it. So uh, it was just a it was a, a well-meaning and, and I hopefully more or less successful attempt to really just get away from. He was born, he did this, he did this, he did this, eventually he starts killing people and and trying to grip the reader and say, well, who is this guy walking out of Joliet? Why does he matter? What's this dark past he's got? How could he have killed so many people? And again, I wanted to get, I really did want to get into the whole investigative thing off the bat because it was so crucial. You know, what did Scotland Yard know that earlier detective agencies in other cities had not caught this fellow. Well, as you read the book, it turns out Scotland Yard was having its own problems trying to uh, get around the fact that it had a, a ripper-like serial killer using poison uh, only a few years after the Whitechapel murders. So um, uh, really wanted to just find a different way to tell a story that, that hopefully would engage readers. And I, I do hope readers can, uh, you know, can, uh, can, uh, I appreciate that and, and will appreciate that. And uh, uh, the attempt to, instead of just, uh, as I said, he's born, he kills, it all comes to grief, spoiler alert. Uh, the, uh, you know, that uh, who is this fellow and, and more importantly, how did he get away with it for so long? Yeah, I don't think, I mean, it, it was a little, you know, it, we do spend some time on it because of course it's always easier to talk about the things. Well, I don't think this worked. Those, you know, when we did a prologue to the book uh, club and we basically, we were talking about how nobody ever writes a book about where everything goes right. So even in book club discussions, nobody, we did talk, spend quite a lot of time talking about, you know, cream and, and the things we did like, but we did spend a significant chunk on that. So oh. I did, I didn't want to like catch you unawares or, or anything because we did yeah. overall most, we, you know, we enjoyed the book. It was just that one little thing where you all, you can always find the things you need to talk about that, you know, don't work are a lot more interesting to talk about than, oh, this was fantastic. But we did all very much enjoy the book. Like we thought it was a solid read and we did recommend it as a purchase at the end. 
you Thank tend you. to have you have you do have a reliance on Conan Doyle in it too a, a lot. Like there's a lot of mentions of Conan Doyle. Is he a, a character that you're fascinated by? Is yes, I, I did a lot of research. I mean, I was fascinated by the fact that while Sherlock Holmes' character had appeared in the late 1880s, that the character only took off in the Strand magazine series uh, between 1891 1892. And it coincided exactly with when Cream was doing his London murders. And of course, he's still unknown to police. They don't even realize there's a serial killer working when the Strand publishes uh, the story where Sherlock Holmes refers to the doctor being the first of the doctor who goes wrong being the first of criminals, having the nerve and the knowledge to murder. So I, I found those interesting parallels. And I really, I had set out in my research to see if Conan Doyle had ever commented on the case. I mean, this, as he's writing his detective, as he's creating really what we know as Sherlock Holmes, this murderer is running around uh, London, you know, a mile from his house. And I even went to the British Library to go through uh, Conan Doyle's papers, which was a joy in itself to, uh, to be able to, to see his writings, uh, his, his uh, personal letters. But I could not find any uh, reference uh, to the Cream case directly. But I did find references to his portrayals of Scotland Yard I was able to use, to uh, uh, his views on crime, such as releasing a tiger. So, um, and I think in part, I just saw it as part of the context. I would have liked to have found a, uh, uh, some kind of, 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 of actual connection. But there is the connection with Joe Bell. Uh, that I talk about in the book, that I thought uh, that was a real discovery, that uh, when Cream went to Edinburgh in uh, 1878, after having committed his first murder and training in England, he, um, he sat for a license uh, that he then used to burnish his credentials and attract clients and arguably attract victims in the years that followed. But one of the uh, people who assessed his application was Joe Bell. Joe Bell became a good friend of Conan Doyle's. He had been Conan Doyle's medical prof, uh, one of his instructors at Edinburgh. And Joe Bell is the model for Sherlock Holmes. Joe Bell had this knack, this ability to, uh, lightning fast ability to size up people based on the calluses on their hands, the wear on their shirt collars, things like this. And Conan Doyle watched this day in, day out. It became Sherlock Holmes. So that was an interesting parallel. So I did want to find out as much as I could about Conan Doyle for those portions. Uh, and uh, as well, just because I was fascinated with the way detective fiction was influencing public attitudes to detective fact. It was one of the things that clearly was making citizens of Britain uh, losing patience with Scotland Yard because, and Scotland Yard detectives talked about this, they resented the fact that Conan Doyle made detection look so easy, putting more pressure on them. Yeah, it's a lot easier now, you know, we, they don't have, you know, forensics, finger, any of that back in the day, and everybody's expecting them. I found, I found the, the, we discussed this and I didn't go into it in the book club a little bit, but I do believe that the public had unrealistic expectations of, I mean, how many murders get solved nowadays? Not all that many, unless it's your straight linear husband or spouse kills spouse for, you know, jealousy or gain. 
not a whole lot of crimes get solved today when it's random people doing random things. There is sort of this idea that our our public servants should be uh, superheroes at some times, which don't necessarily, I mean, it's great to write a story about, but it doesn't really work that way in real life. Well, one, one Scotland Yard detective in his memoirs took umbrage at Holmes, and I guess sort of to paraphrase him, it's, it's easy to solve a crime in three to 4,000 words in a story, harder in real life. And of course, the other uh, the knock uh, against Holmes for, for uh, the Scotland Yard detectives is the portrayal of people like Lestrade as bumbling, bumbling fools who couldn't solve a case until uh, superhero Sherlock Holmes comes in to save the day. So all of that was a fascinating, I thought, part of, of the story, and uh, especially in the context of what I could find from the Scotland Yard files, which were voluminous and still exist, just step by step, the, the barriers, the problems, the, the, the dead ends they were facing as they tried to figure out who was responsible for these Lambeth murders, and ultimately, uh, Cream stepping into their crosshairs as the, uh, the suspect. All right. Well, I don't want to keep you for too long. I think we've covered the major points and it has been an absolute joy and delight speaking with you. And uh, I enjoyed your book. I had no, I'm, you know, I didn't know anything about cream and I thought you did a very, very good job of uh, laying it out there. It gave me many things to think about and uh, I appreciate your book and I, and I appreciate you coming on. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. Oh, you know what I should ask you before we go, do you have anything upcoming? Uh, another book in the pipeline that you would like to? I do. I have a new book in the works for uh, Algonquin Books again. And uh, this time, uh, uh, my previous book to uh, Cream was about a 1920s Ponzi schemer in Chicago. And I'm going back to that 1920s jazz age. Uh, this time, it's the story of a gentleman thief. Uh, think of, I call it, uh, Catch Me If You Can meets The Great Gatsby and uh, that wonderful Netflix series, Lupin. Uh, about a gentleman jewel thief, uh, so slick, preyed on the the wealthy uh, of New York, raided their summer homes, uh, would size them up, would uh, cut this dashing figure, would crash parties, and uh, uh, ostensibly as some rich uh, invitee, but he was actually casing the house for a, a nocturnal visit to come, and. Uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars in jewelry over uh, a number of years run in the uh, 20s. And uh, so it's just a fascinating story about jazz age excess. And uh, and also he becomes a celebrity. This um, So there's, there's the whole uh, um, media circus or uh, media touting that goes on once he's arrested of this uh, slick thief who was able to show up all of these wealthy people. And an element of it is he even said, well, you know, I didn't steal from people who were going to go hungry. <laughs> so so um, he's had a bit of a Robin Hood complex there. A bit of it, yeah. He was, he was like a Robin Hood who didn't give it away to the poor. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but so- Well, he uh, was poor, anyways, you know. Yeah, it's a wonderful period. And, uh, and it's just a, a real rollicking story. And and I've only I've barely given away half of it because there's a whole uh, uh, a whole afterlife after he's caught uh, that even brings in the uh, Lindbergh kidnapping and uh, some other uh, events and and ultimately uh, 
uh, it's a story of redemption because he does serve his time, but uh, manages to reform himself. So anyway, fascinating character. Uh, there's information on my website. It's just my name, D-E-A-N-J-O-B-B.com. And uh, really uh, well into the writing and really enjoying this one. That does actually sound like a really interesting case. And I look forward to possibly reviewing it for an upcoming edition of Rippercast off the shelf. If we I'll, I'll try to work Jack the Ripper in somewhere. I'm not sure how, but I, okay. But when is it, when is it, uh, when, when is your tentative release date? Oh, for possibly 2024. 2024. So it just it's all on me now, but a uh, couple of years, I hope, uh, hope we'll be able to talk. All right. Well, see you then. Thank you so much, Allie, and uh, appreciate it. Appreciate your interest in, and uh, the chance to talk about the book. This has been the inaugural edition of RipperCast Off the Shelf. We hope that you enjoyed it. I would like to thank the Johns and Dean Job for joining me. If you enjoyed it, please pick up a copy of The Case of the Salmon Sandwiches by M.W. Oldridge and read along with us for the next episode of Off the Shelf, due out in March.